Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. You know, it's a very, very interesting journey, you know, that uh, that he's uh, taking on. You know, now he is definitely on a rocket ship, and we're going to be learning all about it. You know, definitely a very inspiring story. And I don't want to make you wait any longer. So let's uh, let's welcome our guest today, Scott Gravel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, uh, it's fun to hang out with you. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there in Canada? I appreciate, you know, warm weather and sunshine. It's interesting. I talk with all of my American friends and growing up in Canada, everyone's afraid of the cold, but you can always dress up warmer. But almost the same experience as growing up in Texas. The only difference is in Texas, when it's too hot, you can't go to the playground. Um, it makes you, it makes you resilient, makes you appreciate, you know, good streaming video, um, when, when winters are long and winters are dark, but it gives you lots of time to work on things. So, uh, I've appreciated, you know, growing up in a country that gives a crap about its people. So that's been good for me. That's amazing. Now, now in your case, you know, we see the business side, you know, very interesting how you've been pushing it, you know, and, and that, um, that, that, that kind of like entrepreneurial spirit too, no? I mean, did you have anyone in the family or, or what did that happen later? No, I grew up blue collar, middle class, 
I think everyone's expectation uh, expectations of me were to go be some kind of tradesperson, like most of you know my family, extended family, uncles and aunts. And I did. Um, I used to be a cabinet maker, so I followed that path. But what I found was I was always looking for new ideas, and I think it has more to do with satisfying my my ADHD than entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I get bored easily. So I discovered the best way to deal with that was to learn. And uh, so that's what, you know, led me down the path of starting a couple, a couple of my own businesses and certainly this one. Now, we're going to be talking about what you're up to in just a little bit, you know, which is really exciting. Uh, but but what, 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 what got you into the armed forces? What was, what was that experience? I didn't have good enough grades to go to university. And I was working actually at a hospital. I used to set up heart lung machines for perfusionists back in the day. And I worked with a physician's assistant. And I wanted to be a, a surgeon who wasn't a doctor like him. And there's two paths, go become a surgical nurse or go be a medic in the armed forces. So I signed up uh, and started basic training on my 20th birthday in the Canadian Armed Forces out in Eastern Canada to become a medic. Wow. So what kind of stuff were you doing there? <laughs> Mostly washing trucks and rolling bandages. Uh, when you're a low man on the totem pole, <laughs> you, you get to do all the grunt work. But I, uh, I got really, really good, actually, at uh, treating warts and doing vasectomies. Um, that was some of the work that I did when I was in the Army. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, obviously, yeah. after this, you know, it gave a perspective. I mean, you moved to Calgary, and, and then you studied the nursery. Yeah, nursing. Yeah. I, um, the Armed Forces actually did budget cuts in the Canadian Armed Forces. And I was uh, offered a different job other than the one that I'd signed up for. So I didn't want to do that. So they actually laid me off and packaged me out. And I took that time and I went and moved to Calgary to go study uh, for a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing, because that's the other path to go becoming a physician's assistant. So, so, so that's pretty much what happened. So you studied nursing and then you would be helping a, a physician. That, that's kind of like the, um, the path. That was that was the goal, but once again, budget cuts. You know, Canada has yeah. socialized medicine. So when I graduated uh, from university, they were closing down all the hospitals, and it's a union job. So that made it difficult to find a role. So I went back to what I knew, which was to make things. So I went back to cabinet making. And why making them in California? You know, what 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 got you to move there? A uh, girl. You know, that's usually what why, why you move <laughs> all over the world is uh, you meet a girl and. Uh, so I followed her down to you know, California and I lived just outside of Santa Cruz and I was really fortunate that I worked with a millwork company that was doing like really high-end interior work. So I got to do kind of the best of cabinet making and millwork down there. And, uh, you know, projects we would work on for a year that were incredibly detailed and using beautiful stuff. And then moving back to Canada, you know, I went from doing high-end millwork in California to now, you know, being a key accounts manager for a millwork shop, a kitchen cabinet company. So from building kitchens and, and millwork to designing them and then running a team of estimators, and that was a different switch for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Now, when you did the first ride on a longboard, did that happen in California or did that happen in Canada? Uh, that happened in Canada. Um, I was actually looking to do some dry land training because um, I used to be a competitive hang glider pilot. I used to tour the world racing hang gliders. And um, 
I wanted to do something that was active and exciting um, when I wasn't flying. So I decided that, you know, longboarding would be the thing. I bought a longboard from a company and I rode it for two days and it broke. And they did nothing to support me. So I thought that's kind of crappy that I could build a better one myself. So then I started building longboards. And more people wanted longboards. So then I started a longboard manufacturing business. Wow. And that was the first business, the first like a company that you were that you were building, no? I mean, obviously the other ones, you know, were more on the contractor, you know, type of uh, side of things with the cabinets, but the, but here you went at it. So, so what happened with this company? Became the fifth largest longboard skateboard manufacturer in the world, which is like saying you're a tadpole in a puddle. Uh, wasn't a huge market. Did it for five years. Uh, spent half the time starving um, because you make a lot of money, you know, from March until July, and then you don't make any money. And so I shuttered the company after five years, and I took all of the experience that I had kind of built up doing a lot of automated manufacturing, actually. And I spun that out into a consulting business where I was helping companies integrate and um, inject digital manufacturing strategies into their workflows. So millwork shops, cabinet shops, of course, but also bottling and plastic companies and stuff like that. So how do you go from consulting now now to to what you're up to at this point. I mean, obviously, you know, the background, you know, anyone that uh, that would think about it, oh, from 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 nursing to to now, you know, being an entrepreneur of, of, of this company. I mean, what was that sequence of events, you know, that needed to happen for you to bring this company to life? Well, I, I've always built things my entire life. You know, I grew up seeing my my parents and my uncles and aunts always just making things very kind of practical people so building things all my life and then certainly cabinet making and then in cabinet making craft started to get displaced by technology and i didn't want to be displaced so i became very good at the technology the computer computer-aided manufacturing and so i came like a dr doolittle of cnc machines i could talk to the animals so to speak and I was doing a consulting gig uh, and needed a buffer at the end of a manufacturing line. So I designed uh, a buffer that had movable storage. And so I found a company that actually had robots that move shelves that would have helped in that buffer. So I called them and they said that they, you know, thank you. They're no longer accepting inquiries and hung up on me. And I was like, who the hell doesn't want my money? And it turned out that that company was just acquired by Amazon a week and a half before for $775 million. And that sent me down a rabbit hole because I started looking at supply chain automation for the first time. I'd always been in manufacturing automation. And looking at it, I saw that most warehouse automation and supply chain automation was some derivative of a human-centric environment. And what I mean by that is human beings are two-dimensional. We walk on the ground, we drive on the ground, we need roads, hallways, aisles, to access everything. Um, and I figured nature probably had a better idea of how to organize storage. And I found it when I saw a documentary about leafcutter ants and had an aha moment of what three-dimensional storage could look like and how movement could happen within that storage matrix and started drawing and drafting and then spent two years trying to find a legitimate reason not to do this because it scared the hell out of me. What and was scary never, about it? Well, what was scary uh, about it? 
when you're selling five thousand dollars worth of longboards to a skate shop is one thing. When you're selling, you know, five million to fifty million dollar projects to Fortune, you know, five hundred companies, it's a very different thing. And I would say I failed at longboards. I shuttered the company after five years because I couldn't really support myself and my family doing that. Um, so the fear of failing again, fear of risking again, the fear of now elevating a business to a completely different level. You know, $5,000 orders just $5 million orders is very, very different. Um, so I said to myself that, you know, I'm going to go find the reason not to do this, but I wouldn't let the reason be that I was afraid. You know, IP wasn't defensible, wouldn't work, customers wouldn't want it, the market wasn't growing to support it. There had to be a real reason. And never found it. <laughs> Here I am. So then, you know, tell us about the moment that you're like, screw it, let's do it. and. Uh... And also, what, what ended up being the business model of Atabotics for the people that are listening to to really get how you guys are making money too? So the, the original kind of business model is that we would manufacture and sell as CapEx with recurring revenue and services um, a fulfillment solution for modern commerce. Now, that's not just robots. That's not just racking and bins. It's software and intelligence and integration and insights. So we started building off of some unique IP, the, the fulfillment engine for modern consumer behavior, which is single item, uh, pick with order consolidation, um, and a high, highly dense solution with flexible automation that could be deployed closer to the consumer. That was kind of the piece. And I bravely or naively, probably both, um, and was both maybe, you know, wise and stupid to bite off a huge chunk of, of this piece of the puzzle because building hardware is certainly more challenging than software, but building hardware and software and embedded and communications and process and structure um, was a big, big piece of this. But I felt it was the piece needed to actually make substantive change to resolving the problem. And that's what we've been working on um, since we started. I originally thought I was just going to prove it out and sell the IP. Um, but everyone that came that was interested in the IP told us that we were moving faster than they ever could. And just to keep going. So we kept going. And now it's six and a half years later. Um, over 300 employees. You know, been on a, an interesting funding journey, closed our Series C here in November, um, and thankfully that every turn of the world seems to validate the work that we're doing. And how did you, how did you go, obviously the, your background, you know, completely, you know, uh, unique, right. For, for, for taking this thing on, how did you go as well about surrounding yourself by the right people that perhaps, you know, may have the answers that you didn't have given your background? Oh, you know what? Every story is about people. Um, and I can say that I have found some amazing people to surround myself with. And I've also had the misfortune of surrounding myself with some people that were far from helpful. And the biggest learnings that I've had is, you know, dealing with people. I started building robots because dealing with people is hard. And machines are actually kind of easy, comparably. But 
the biggest part of this journey and the story is is about people. I think you nailed it. I, I have an incredibly strong team around me right now, but that wasn't always the case. And fighting through that and the changes in people. You know, as a business grows, not everyone grows with the business. And the hardest thing I've ever had to do is realize that not everybody gets to be part of the entire journey. And that, that was hard and disappointing. But I'm, I'm glad we are where we are now, and I'm glad I'm with who I'm with now. So then I guess saying as part of that, you know, because that's a very important point. I mean, the company that, you know, you have today, you know, it's, it's, it's always moving, right? And it's always growing. It's always, you know, different type of skill sets, different type of um, people that, that you need. So I guess, you know, two questions here come to mind, uh, Scott. Uh, one is, how do you go about now, you know, bringing the right people? I mean, is there like certain, you know, type of criteria or, or perhaps like a question or something that you do to make sure that you're not making a mistake? And then also, at what point do you realize that maybe the company has outpaced certain individuals and how do you go about rearranging things? So picking people is hard. You don't, at the level I'm looking for, for support, because I realize that I can't keep my job as CEO unless I surround myself with incredibly strong people to make up for everything that I'm not. You know, I think I've got the, the charismatic startup founder thing kind of nailed, but to be a good professional CEO is a completely different skill set. You know, one is about passion and fire and drive, and the other one is about communication and consistency and and leadership and they're different um so what i try to surround myself with is a people to challenge me i don't need yes people in my life i have a strong enough opinion they can stand my own but i want people that challenge me because the best ideas come out of really good passionate discussion and the best idea should always win i have found that hiring for my personality type, hiring weak people, insecure people, is always a catastrophe. I don't want to eat them for lunch, but unless you have a strong, informed opinion, it's, it's, it's challenging for me to interact with those people. So I look for strength. I look for security. I look for confidence. I look for curiosity. But the number one thing, passion. Do they have a fire in their belly to come do this with me? Because any intelligent, passionate person can learn to do whatever they need to do um, to contribute wherever they need to. And that's what I've seen about the most successful people in my organization are people that really give a shit and are smart enough to learn whatever they need to, but also secure enough to admit that they don't know everything they need to know. And when you're doing something that's never been done before, the most dangerous thing uh, you can hire someone who goes, oh, I know exactly what needs to be done. We're just going to do it like I did it before. That's that's good. I love it. And the other part, your second part of the question is, the biggest mistake I've ever made is not acting as, as quickly as I should have, knowing that people didn't fit into the, uh, the way the organization was evolved. Wasn't right for them, wasn't right for the company. I am the king of second and third chances. Although I have a reputation within some of being a bit of an a-hole, um, I care about people and I want to do everything I can to support them. Um, but the worst part is, is after they failed on their third chance and you knew it after the first one, you weren't doing them or yourself a favor. 
And so recognizing that if people aren't changing as quickly as the business needs them to, and they're not motivated to change. And if there isn't a different seat for them on the bus where they can contribute, then they need to get off the bus. That's yeah. hard. That sucks. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you try to to put people, you know, where they're not performing into different seats, they keep failing. And then obviously that has a ripple effect into other employees too, no? It's a cost opportunity yeah. for everyone. Yeah, because the business changes so fast. Like it really does. It's it's like when you have little kids, you know, they seem like a lump for the first six months that doesn't do anything. And then they become self-aware, discover their hands. Next, you know, they're walking, you know, they're talking, they're exploring. And before you know it, they're graduating high school, you know, and they develop so quickly that, you know, you as a parent, a caregiver, mentor to that child, they need different people in different situations in their lives because the, the, the child grows and develops so quickly in the business the same way. And if you're not growing and developing, even though you might've been here first or one of the first 10 or 20 people, if you're not growing and developing to meet the needs of the business, it's hard to see the business growing without you. And that's like, people have been the hardest part about building robot by far. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes. And it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that. Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. You guys have raised quite a bit of money. 
And, you know, when you raise money, you know, too, I mean, it, you're getting it from people that, you know, you're hopeful that they're going to be bringing value in addition to the money because there's no shortage of capital, right? So so what has been that experience, you know, too, and how much capital have you guys raised and how that has changed over time? Because I know that the last day round that you guys did, too, that was, that was uh, massive heavy lifting. Yeah, the last couple have been heavy lifting. Um, hardware is expensive. Hardware takes time and more time than I originally thought naively and more money than I thought. So I'm thrilled that we've received the support that we have from people that believe in the vision and share the vision of the future. So super thankful for that. But like people, the people that invest in you in the early, early stages might not be the same people you need in the later ones. And the value you need as an early stage startup from your investors, um, those investors might not be bringing the same value you need as a growth business. Uh, but the thing is, unlike people that are employees, um, they all, investors all maintain an equity position in your business and an interest in your business um, until you're in a position to change that. So you can't just let them get or go on with their lives. <laughs> so you have to be, the, the choices you make early on in who joins you on the journey, who starts the journey with you, and who your investors are in the early stage are some of the biggest, most important decisions you'll make. And any early stage company thinks that any investment is great. And I would caution anyone to think really, really long and hard about what vision you have for the business and whether or not that investor is someone that will help you on the entire journey. And, um, but you don't know. You don't know that. You know, people coming with the best of intentions and the best stories and, you know, um, but time, time and, and situations change. And, and Scott, and how much capital have you guys raised to date? I think we're just over 180 million plus another 80 million Canadians, so about 50 million U.S. in grants. Um, so tell us about, too, about fighting a takeover during a fundraising <laughs> I mean, well, come oh, on. You got you to give, give, give yeah, us the battlefield stories. Yeah. Well, I'll write a book and I'll name names, uh, but until the book's published, I'm, I'm not going to name too many names. But we had an investment offer from a Fortune 50 business uh, before COVID hit. And it was a couple hundred million dollars at a really, really healthy valuation. And we were kind of arguing about you know, how much control a company like that should have as a minority shareholder in the business. And uh, then COVID hit. And they thought that it was great that instead of making an investment and argue about control, that they actually try to acquire the business for a couple hundred million bucks, which would have been a tragedy. And um, at the same time, you know, everyone was scared in early COVID. Everyone was fearful about what the future looked like. So there was a, there was a group of early stage investors that, you know, shareholders that thought liquidity would be safer for them than leaving it in the business. So when you've got kind of aggressive, kind of aggressive investor that wants to buy your business at below market and a group of shareholders that are scared themselves and figure that selling is the best thing for their best interests, um, it doesn't make for a warm and fuzzy environment to figure out how to keep moving the company forward. And um, I learned a lot about people in that experience on how money can make people pretty shitty. And um, fought really hard with a very, very tight group within the business 
um, to go actually raise the funding the company needed to say no thank you to that acquisition offer. And uh, politely saying no thank you to that and being in a position um, to say we've raised money, we don't need to consider your acquisition offer anymore, was one of the more satisfying moments in my career. No kidding. Um, I People that know me say that my biggest fuel is a bit of FU energy. I love to prove people that don't believe in me, you know, I like to prove them wrong. Because happiness and success is the best revenge you could ever have. I don't dwell on, on bringing any negative energy to any of the people that, you know, have been, you know, detrimental, I guess, to my, my anxiety and mental health. Um, but I do know that success and happiness uh, drives them crazy. My success and happiness drives them crazy. So um, it was really, really challenging to try to hold your life together, your personal life together, your family life together, feeling responsible for the amount of people that depend on me for their paycheck and their family's well-being um, in a world that was so uncertain in early COVID. And you know that the first the first year of COVID, like VCs weren't even answering the phone. Anymore. They were just desperately trying to figure out how to save their own portfolio companies. So finding a great group with um, the, the Teachers Innovation Function, that was called was the, the Teachers Venture Platform at the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan that believed in the, you know, the future of automation and supply chain um, and made an investment in us at a very pivotal time um, and weren't predatory in doing so. I really have a lot of respect for any venture capitalist now that understands that although there's deals to be had, you are building a relationship with that business and that entrepreneur. And if, if, the, if the first interaction feels more like date rape, you're not going to be building a great relationship. And so I am thrilled that every investor that has joined the company in the last couple of years sees this as a partnership um, and not just a short-term opportunity and picking like i said picking the people i work with i've been incredibly fortunate to find some great people having learned the lessons i learned uh early on and applying those now like our cap table is getting incredibly strong with some you know very diverse but helpful actually investors that can help uh, build the business and take it to the next level. And to that point um, about the investors, you know, obviously you, you guys were dealing there with a very challenging time. You know, it sounds like, you know, you had this acquisition on the table. Uh, you were getting pressure from, you know, some of those investors that were scared to really go forward with that transaction. How were you able to uh, get the enrollment, you know, and, 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 jumping that future that you were living into so that they would jump with you in order to put this on hold and be able to bring this other alternative that was actually much better. I mean, you didn't have that at that point. So how were you able to get them enrolled to really believe with you in, in the fact that there was a better future? They didn't believe. They just didn't have majority. <laughs> okay. And had I not taken the other investors and showed them a value for their investment, not that group, like not the group that wanted to sell, 
but I still had to prove to the other members of the cap table and the board that we had a very viable opportunity and good funding to keep moving it forward to make sure that they didn't want to sell. And I was able to show that bringing some you know new money and new investors into the cap table because the early stage guys that wanted to sell, not only did they want to sell, but we're actively having conversations with the acquiring business um, at the detriment of the of of my company. There was there was a bit like I said it's going to be an interesting chapter in the book. There's there's a bit of a conspiracy going on there. Um, it was very satisfying to kind of head that off at the table and do what was in the best interest of the business and the best you know interest of the stakeholders of the business, not just what was in the best interest of a small group of you know real estate investors that wanted some liquidity. Um, and I've learned, you know, when I talk about evolving as, as a CEO versus a charismatic startup founder, um, understanding Canadian corporate governance, which by the way, is different than us corporate governance and U S corporate governance is what's best for the shareholders. Canadian corporate governance is what's best for all of the stakeholders. It has to be what's right for the business first. And leveraging that, improving that this decision was what was right for the business. And that allowed, that allowed that process to move forward. And every contract you have, shareholder agreement you have, there's drag along voting. You know, if a majority or a supermajority agrees to something, um, then everyone has to come, come along for the ride. And they might not have agreed to what was being done at the time because they desperately wanted their cash out of the business, but it wasn't right for the business to sell at that point at a, in a depressed market at a, at a lower than ideal valuation to basically uh, uh, kind of a predatory uh, entity that was looking to take advantage of the macroeconomic climate that existed in early COVID. That was not what was right for the business. Um, prove that, move forward. Um, and thankfully, COVID validated what Atabotics does. And there was increased consumer adoption to, to you know, digital shopping, digital commerce. Um, and now inflationary pressures, labor pressures, real estate pressures are validating what we do even more. So I, I'm thankful that we're not a luggage company, <laughs> you know, because COVID didn't really validate, you know, that piece. But for us, like we keep getting the reassurances and encouragement that we need for our product, our solution, and the opportunity, the, you know, and the, and the TAM that exists for what we do. That's amazing. Now, Scott, imagine that you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Atabotics is fully realized. What does that world look like? Interior, we joke around saying, you know, robots building robots to take over the world. Our robots are kind of stupid, though, so don't be too threatened. The world, supply chain world, consumer expectation, globalization, um, the growth of the middle class and emerging markets like India and China, um, creating a larger consumer class is putting a burden on existing supply chains and the environment and the world and the cost. Um, like Amazon's still not making money selling stuff. They're making great money with cloud services, but it's there needs to be a fundamental change to the way we think about the movement of goods and commerce. And I take inspiration from the biggest leaps in efficiency that have happened historically in supply chain. And they were all about creating a standardization for automation. 
a forklift only works if you have a pallet and pallet racking and trucks that fit the pallets. But a pallet is a standardized interface for automation and a forklift is standardized to move pallets around a warehouse. And that changed warehousing. Um, the barcode introduced by Kmart back in the day is a digital way of identifying a product instead of putting individual price tags on cans of beans um, dramatically shifted. But it's not just a barcode, it's a laser scanner, it's a computer and network communication. Um, Vietnam War, the U.S. Department of Defense instituted uh, containerized shipping. But it's not just a container, it's the ships, the ports, the cranes, the trucks, the trains. And that opened up global commerce for multimodal transport because you're only now having to move containers. What you put in containers can be incredibly variable, but everything is optimized for moving containers now, and that has changed global economies. Um, there needs to be another transition now to using a standardized interface for automation and the data intelligence that comes now with aggregated data, cloud AI, uh, private LTE, you know, God forbid I say blockchain AI, that creates efficiencies in supply chain that have never been possible before. My vision for Atabotic is to put a distributed, democratized, supply chain in every major market to bring goods closer to the consumer, which lowers transportation costs, which lowers time. It also, if you get stuff same day, next day, it lowers return rates, reverses the burden of, of uh, reverse logistics, creates more profitability in a shared ecosystem like that. But there needs to be an aggregated ecosystem of in-market micro-fulfillment in a broad network that utilizes the data analytics as well as shared transportation to democratize uh, fulfillment for both the consumer and, and retailers and brands. Um, so my vision is to work with our partners that bring all of these different pieces together. Like I'll never build a private LTE or 5G networking business. I'll never build a cloud company. I'll never build robotic each picking. But our technology becomes a platform where all these companies now can start applying the values of, of these emerging technologies in to create efficiencies that have never been seen in supply chain before. And that's my goal. So if I wake up tomorrow, my goal is that I can order a pair of black suede size nine and a half Adidas gazelles, get them same day, and, and know that it costs the environment, planet, the retailer, and me less in doing so. That's amazing. Well, hey, that would be a beautiful world. Now, Scott, imagine, you know, we, we just talked about the future. Imagine, you know, like we take a look at, at the past. Imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, maybe that time where you were thinking about starting a business, you know, of your own. And you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and you are able to give that younger Scott one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The bigger idea you have, the more disruptive the idea you have, the more likely you are to find support, the less likely you are to encounter competition. And if you're going to put effort into anything, pick the biggest idea because it's the same amount of effort that is doing the smallest one, but you'll have a chance of making a bigger difference for yourselves, the people that believe in you, and hopefully the world. 
Um, don't be afraid of big disruptive things. Incremental ideas are not safer than big ones. So think big and believe that if you if you are solving a big enough problem, that you'll find all the support you need to go do it. I love it, Scott. That's so profound. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, that would want to um, reach out and say hi, what would be the best way for them to do so? I'm I'm the very first Scott at Atabotics, so it's Scott at Atabotics.com. And Amazing. I'm happy I'm happy to connect with anybody. If if any if in any way I can pay forward um the support that I've received by helping someone avoid some of the mistakes that I've made. Um I'm happy I'm happy to do so. That's how the world becomes a better place. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. I really appreciate the time. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.